Welcome, friends, back under the tree. I, this is Johan. Um, I'm, I'm here joint co-hosting with uh, Tanvir. And today we have a special, special, special guest, Kabir Barikate, uh, who, who is here to teach us many things. And I think let's, uh, Kabir, do you want to just say hi to our listeners so they hear your voice? Well, it's wonderful to be here, Johan and Tanvir. Um, hello, listeners. Uh, for those of you who've been following this podcast, uh, I hope it will be an interesting one. I have no doubt myself. Um, and, and let's just jump in, Kabir, if you don't mind. Um, we could really go through your incredible bio from India to Japan to Belize to South Africa to the United States and around the world. But I, I do think that would suck up all the time to to talk about your ideas, which is what I want uh, to get to, and to talk about uh, being under the tree uh, of the Constitutional Court. So this podcast really focuses about the Constitutional Court. And uh, as, as just a question, I mean, with your globetrotting ways, um, do you have a memory of when you might have first encountered the Constitutional Court or a judgment from it? And and what do you make sense? How do you, how do you, from that, how do you see the court as an institution in, sure, South African domestic law, but also in the international imaginary? Well, I mean, that's a, that's a fairly large canvas question. Um, but, uh, I mean, I, I really think that the South African Constitutional Court has played a key key part, um, you know, in, in upholding, you know, the, the rights. But, but really, I think, for me, what was interesting when, you know, when I was a law student in India, um, and um, this is, we're talking about the, you know, the heralding of democracy into South Africa. I mean, one of the things that inspired a lot of us was the South African constitution. I mean, I think we kind of, watched quite closely the drafting of the constitution and when the constitution was adopted it the understanding was that it was arguably one of the most progressive constitutions in the world and all of us i mean law students in that at that time kind of e resolved to say at least those of us who were committed to to you know freedoms and rights and uh, i think committed to to observing this process rather closely either in a way to say, okay, how can our own constitutional be, jurisprudence, wherever we are, be inspired by the South African constitution? And, and you know, the way the constitution itself was, was developed, you know, from the Bill of Rights and how that entire journey of how this constitution became a kind of a people's constitution, so to speak. But also watching carefully, you know, the South African jurisprudence that came out of the constitutional court, we were curious to see what kind of cases would come up and, and you know how it would be dealt with. And I think, you know, the, in, in many ways, I think the constitutional court kind of really, you know, took its seat. I mean, also during the, during the uh, you know, HIV AIDS pandemic and, and, and really, uh, uh, you know, how the treatment action campaign, you know, relied on the constitutional court to uphold rights. And, you know, Nelson Mandela was a big farmer, all these kind of key things. So, so in a way, what has been for me fascinating about about South Africa and the South African constitution and consequently South African constitutional court is that it's always been a kind of a beacon for rights um, in a way that irrespective of what the state of affairs is politically within the country, the constitutional court has kind of 
you know, st stood true to the constitution. And that's been an inspi inspiration. So I have a lot of former, you know, classmates of mine who at different points in time ended up coming to South Africa, doing internships in South Africa, you know, spending time at the constitutional court. And I think one of the reasons I came to South Africa as well was, was because of the South African constitution, in a way, you know, the, the inspiration that, 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 that derived from it. So, so I mean, so I'm kind of answering in a very broad way in terms of, you know, what the constitution and constitutional court meant to me. But I think those of us from the global south, uh, uh, for us, I mean, it's undeniable, uh, at least those of us, you know, who, who are lawyers, who went to law school at the time of the end of apartheid, etc. It's, it's undeniable, just seminal influence the South African Constitution and consequently the jurisprudence of the South African Constitutional Court has had on our own kind of legal thinking. Yeah. Um, Kabir, you've said a lot of interesting things, and one of the things that you touched on is the jurisprudence of the court, and I think one, one of your, the ideas that you've worked on, and I can see online when I'm looking through your work, is the idea of biocultural rights, and that was fascinating to me because it was almost the first time that I've come across the concept of biocultural rights. I mean, we've seen environmental rights, we've seen other types of rights, but that seemed quite technical. So I was wondering if you could help me and our listeners and just tell us more about what are biocultural rights in a nutshell? So when we are looking at the, the rights frameworks, I mean, historically, uh, we're looking at, you know, the emergence of civil and political rights, you know, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and, and, and from there. And so these are broadly what you would call, you know, individual rights. And then you have the emergence of socioeconomic rights, the you know <clears throat> the international covenant on, on economic and social rights, and so on. But you also have the emergence of group rights that that came about, and and these were rights that you know different groups had, minorities, ethnic groups, and so on. And you also had you know the rights of indigenous peoples that came as a result of it. You know. What when I speak of biocultural rights, I'm really tracing a particular trajectory, a trajectory within, you know, you know, Anglo-American jurisprudence, for example. I mean, the one that I'm I'm referring to, where we are talking about the recognition of the right to stewardship or the right to care. So really we're talking about whether communities who have long stewarded you know areas of land for example or who have a certain kind of a deep relationship with the land in terms of the very the very peoplehood in some senses tied to the land and uh, there is an ethic of care do these communities really have rights to these lands irrespective of whether or not they have title to it so biocultural rights, in a way, is an acknowledgement of how the courts have, uh, you know, a, a mapping of how the courts have behaved over, over several decades, where periodically it has recognized a set of rights, but it, even in cases where there's been no title, or there's not, not been explicit title. So for example, you know, some of the cases that, that Johan shared with me, for example, I mean, these are cases where there are questions around, do they, 
it's not an open shut kind of private property title deed kind of a case, but these are cases where communities have long lived on these lands, they have deep relationships with the land. And of course, then, then there, is, there is, another, is another entity that wants access to the land. And then, you know, what status do these communities have? And, and more and more, what I had begun to see, especially within the rubric of environmental law, and usually it's, it's around, that's where it has the most amount of purchase around, around environmental law, where environmental law increasingly becomes the site of struggle, where communities who start making clear claims, saying that you, saying that say companies cannot undertake certain activities on their lands, their rights are being upheld despite the fact that these communities don't have legal title to the land. So there's something around the recognition of a particular status or a claim simply by virtue of the fact that one has lived on that land for several generations or even for a, cons for a short but a consistent period of time. And one can establish an ethic of care. And one can, to some extent, say that through that ethic of care, a great a not only is the entire peoplehood of the community sustained um, because it's a land-based culture, but there is also a greater good that is served by virtue of what this, the role that this community is doing. Now, the courts are quite careful about not saying this very explicitly, but one can start noticing a tendency to do this. And, and more so now, especially in the context of you know, the, the uh, uh, rapid biodiversity loss and climate change, that this is being increasingly recognized. So that's broadly what I would say. I would kind of sum it up as, you know, the heart of biocultural rights, the beating heart of biocultural rights is the ethic of stewardship or the ethic of care. And it is really a right to care. And if that's, a, if that's the central hub of biocultural rights, out of it emerges a variety of different spokes that these are all different kinds of rights that the community can claim just by virtue of the fact that they can establish that they have stewarded this, this area or this land or this landscape uh, you know, for a long time. And, so, and I, can, I can even suspect that say, for example, if you're living in a neighborhood and there's a nearby creek or there's a nearby wood or a swamp or whatever it is, now that could be considered you know, the commons um, in a way, but it is quite possible, I would assume, for a community that that enjoys that, that takes care of that, that uh, to be able to say, you know what, there is, we we have a right to object to certain activities that are carried out out there, even though none of us have title to it, even though that land is held in trust or owned by the state, so to speak. Wow, Kabir, I mean. So much of what you're saying just sounds extremely groundbreaking, especially, you know, I think for a private property lawyer where ownership yeah. is sacrosanct, hearing right. the fact that, you know, people living on the land without having title to it could have interests in the land that goes beyond occupation, right? Like this duty of care, as you put it, maybe. And I really love that. And I think you've already started answering the question I'm going to ask you now, but I'm still going to ask you so that we could get it a bit more fleshed out. But what is the importance of biocultural rights, as you put it? <laughs> I think fundamentally the importance of biocultural rights is it 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 advocates for a certain kind of a relationship. So 
I think there are a couple of things that need to be unpacked here. Um, firstly, I think one of the grave misunderstandings we have of property is that we understand property as a thing. Property is not a thing. Property is a set of legally recognized relationships, right? So, you know, you could have a right in something or a right to something, and that can be property. That can be a right to property uh, or a property right, so to speak. But, but, pro but I think the thingification of property has become a problem. So I think when people think of property, say my property or whatever, it's a very American kind of way of thinking about it in terms of a, a castle or a fortress approach of a right to exclude. Um, and, and I think the other fallacy that we tend to entertain is that we equate property with private property, right? I think property is so much more than private property. So I think these are things that in popular imagination, you say, okay, property is a thing. This is my thing. And, and I have complete rights to exclude everybody and I can do whatever I want with it. Now, now these are certain cultural tropes. And if you really look at the law carefully, they don't hold that much water. Um, so when, so when we talk about then what exactly are we trying to respect in the context of biocultural rights? We're trying to bring it back down to the basics of relationships. Ultimately, you know, um, we're trying to challenge the kind of reification that happens uh, with the law. Now, when I use the word reification um, in law, I use it very consciously. So what is what is reification? Reification is, a lot of law works as reification, where you can look at a particular context, a local context, which is a web of a variety of different relationships, a variety of different users of a particular resource who have you know, a complex set of relationships to, to the land or to, or to the water and vis-a-vis and, you know, each other, they relate to each other through all of that. Now, that in some sense is seen as messy. So you abstract out of that, you know, something called property. And then you abstract out of that something called, you know, the, this is a title holder. This person has the right to exclude other people. There's a certain abstraction out of it. And then later, the abstraction is presented as, as if that is real. As if that's how it, it is. So then suddenly when you have a, the kind of cases that we've been talking about or Johan's shared with me, you have a situation where suddenly, you know, this community or whatever has to go to court because, you know, this mining company is out there saying, okay, you know, they're excluded from the land that they've lived on for several generations. They, don't, they, can't, they can no longer go as people who have a certain relationship with the land, say, you know, my ancestors are buried here or, you know, this is where, you know, my child had, you know, first grazed her knee or whatever it is. That, that kind of sentiment is lost, but instead they become, okay, I'm a property holder. The company has a certain lease. So suddenly you use an entirely different language and that's the language of reification. But people forget the origins of what we were trying to do when we started out with trying to kind of abstract something out of a very dense lived through context. I mean, so, so then the abstraction stands in for the real and then no one's, no, people forget about the real and they continue to live in a world of abstraction, even though all of us know that the abstraction is not true, 
right? So it's, it's a kind of an open secret that we all participate in. So for example, it's a bit like, you know, the national flag. The national flag is a reified idea of a sense of a people. But then, the, then you start thinking of the flag as a thing in itself. And you forget that it's about relationships. It's about people. It's about what makes a nation, right? So then everyone kind of gets obsessed with kind of performance. But that's, that's really a lot of how some property works, how the law works. So what, what biocultural rights does is that it tries to kind of dilute the reification to bring it back down to relationships. To so say, okay, let's hold off for a second between, you know, property holders and, you know, who has the right to exclude whom and how it is. But let's talk about what are these kind of relationships that are really, really important out here? And, and, and I think that, that that's, that's really, really essential because ultimately, you know, I mean, when we think about, when we think about it, I mean, it's, it's also very hard to delink property or ideas of property from the nature of the economy, right? Uh, so sometimes we talk of property, we talk, we talk of the political economy um, from the perspective, and, and we also talk about property. And we talk, we, we assume that property is just something that's always, it's always been there. But, but, but somehow the, we have lost along the way the the kind of relationships that 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 we talk about when we talk about when we talk about land. Um, I'm I'm trying to I'm trying to kind of figure out how how best to explain it. But let's let's say let's say for example when we use when we use the term <clears throat> um, when yeah, when we use the term, say, economy, right? I mean, and, and when we talk about the fact that, you know, when we talk about economic models, we speak of the economy in exclusion of the kind of social relationships. We have a certain kind of a market logic and almost, but, but that, that is a very ahistorical kind of idea. That's only in, in late capitalism. I think in historically, I think in, across the board, if you look at anthropological evidence, you know, market decisions were based on social relations in terms of what was important for the society was then kind of represented as the kind of market decisions. So in some sense, the economic choices were embedded in social relationships. It's only a kind of phenomenon of late capitalism where, where social relations are eclipsed by the market, where market decisions now in terms of what, what is profitable or what is economic, then has to recalibrate social relationships. So it, it, in a way that, you know, economic values kind of completely eclipse social values. But that is actually, it's, 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 not, it's not true. So if you actually say, what exactly do we mean by the economy? It's about how we organize a set of social relationships and we, and we articulate what is value, what is a value, what is the good life, what, do, what, what matters. And we kind of keep diluting it and bringing it back down you are able to really unpack the idea of property from just something as a commoditizable thing that can be traded in the market back to its roots, saying this is land, this is people, it's not real estate, it's not timber, it's land, it's trees, um, and, and it's not just resources, it's relationships. 
And then that allows us to then re-engage with the law with a set of fresh eyes. So when you say, what is bioculture, what does biocultural rights do? It articulates the kind of primacy of these relationships that people have with the land. And it says, we've got to take these relationships seriously. And by taking these relationships seriously, we rethink how we understand the juridical subject. So the, league, the juridical subject or the self in law is no longer just an atomistic bearer of rights who then is just kind of closely guarding his or her rights and relating to other atomistic bearers of rights in that way, but rather um, someone who has deep relationships with the land in which they live in or with the waters that they have grown up with. And these relationships have to be safeguarded as opposed to so it reconstructs how we understand the legal subject, because everything in law kind of boils down to what is the nature of the subject, how we understand the subject. And if we rethink truly what makes life worth living, then it's almost like rethinking law itself. So I'll stop there. And I know you've got other questions, but I mean, I went on for a while on this one. Yeah. No, it was all art and beautiful and, and I'm excited. But as we then rethink law itself, I do want to drill down as a practitioner, uh, you know, I struggle with abstract stuff. I mean, I don't when you speak, Kabir, but, uh, but generally I struggle with abstract stuff. So, so if you don't mind me leading, going in with this question, you know, uh, Americans have taken some pot shots here. I think they are deserved, but as a token American on this podcast, I, I want to take, uh, for, take that in to unpack why approaching property with a thingingness, uh, with a thingingness perspective is problematic. But I, I would love if you can then, if we can then move, as, as we move towards, uh, slowly move towards a conclusion, if we can then think about some of the cases that uh, the judgments themselves and, and uh, the facts that you think are relevant behind those judgments that then concretize what you're saying. So in my thinking, Richtersfeld from your thesis is particularly important, but, but also Enderoy's, Sadamaka, um, and then Maledu and Baleni are more recent, but I've not given you enough time to soak in them. But uh, generally, taking what you've said now into what courts are doing uh, as we speak, um, I, I, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Maybe for the, if I may propose that, I mean, for the sake of your listeners, um, why don't we just work, work with an experiment of a biocultural analysis? So your listeners may not be familiar with a lot of these cases, but one thing you could do is that if you could pick, like, say, the cases that you shared with me, if you could just take a minute to say okay this is the case and these are the facts and these are the central issues in the case what i will do is i will respond to it to saying if you apply a biocultural analysis this is how you would look at that case does that so work that, does it... that, that's that's perfect uh, and then but i do want you to reference a couple of the judgments from your experience i can as yeah no, I, I will yeah yeah I will yeah, do yeah. That. yeah awesome yeah. Uh, okay so for for example, Kabir, uh, I you know not I don't only just host this podcast. Though I, I would love to only have that job. I I do my best to be part of a team representing the awesome Colomini mm -hmm. community, 
which mm -hmm. are and this community not only successfully defended their land under apartheid and colonialism now when they had visions of what they would do with their land under democracy those fell short because they'd had to fend off a mine they had to fend off a toll road now there's a suggestion that their land will be used for a smart city and they are fighting with shell over the use of their sea um if you don't mind then and speaking to their experience but with, uh, with uh, focusing on biocultural rights but also the way that relevant judgments you think uh, that might be relevant to them speak to that experience i i would be uh, I would be grateful, but just generally, I'm going to take this opportunity to get free legal advice from you. How how can we package my client's case in a biocultural rights framework? <clears throat> well, I think I mean, what what is interesting about the Olubeni case is that the question is is how would you forward the arguments to something like something like that because one way to look at it is two competing sets of property rights, all right? I mean, if you look at it, you say the company has a set of rights and the community yeah. has has a set of rights. And so how would you resolve it? And I mean, through, through entirely the kind of Anglo-American jurisprudence that we talk about, um, you know, that's that kind of consistently kind of comes up, you know, especially in the Inter-American Court of Human Rights, or even the Androids case in the African Commission on People, uh, Human and People's Rights, or all of these things. I mean, ultimately, it comes down to what exactly are the rights that a community has, especially when there's no, when there's no clear title. And, the, and, and you're trying to track how the court operates. So of course, you use different, uh, you, you're using different laws, and you say, okay, you know, whether but this particular legislation applies in this case, you know, how much, you know, interim relief can the community have in this particular, in this case, but really at the heart of it, how, if you were a judge, I mean, how would you make a decision on, on, on a case like that? And what Good question. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So <clears throat> when we, when we talk about property, the heart of the question is what kinds of property rights should trump over other property rights, right? Isn't that the like central tension? And and the Fair courts in, in say, for example, if you're looking at the kind of case law that I have been referring to in my book, especially the International Court of Human Rights, I mean, I was referring to, you know, the, the Avastingni case or the Maimana village uh, versus Suriname case. All of these cases are cases that have been brought by indigenous peoples, um, you know, um, including the Androids case, um, to the court saying that a way of life must be protected, right? However, uh, none of them have had very clear legal title to it. They can only establish that they've been living on that land right. for a really long time. And the state says by law, they have a right to expropriate or the company says we've got We've got lease, mm. uh, we've got mining rights, and we should go ahead and do it. And yeah. and for me, it's if we don't get to the bottom of how a court decides as to what rights trump over what rights, it's always going to move this way and that way, depending on whether it's you know the nature of the bench, whether it's a progressive bench or conservative bench or whatever it is. And so, for me, I think 
I try to bring it back down to the idea of, of personhood, right? So what yeah. constitutes personhood? Because ultimately, if you're looking at if you're looking at the law, if you're looking at property and understanding it from within the legal framework itself, there are two kinds of property. There's personal property and there's fungible property. And when I say that, I mean, like say for example, there is a different relationship that you have to your wedding ring, which is a thing, you could say it's, it's an object, right? There's a different relationship you have to your wedding ring than the kind of relationship the jeweler has to the wedding, to a ring that she is selling in her shop, right? In the same way, there's a different relationship you have to your home, which is still brick and mortar, than say a company that buys up entire apartment buildings and, you know, leases it out. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, you would admit that there is a different kind of relationship, but both are probably. I admit it. I admit it. Right. And, 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 I, and I think it's, so you have, so let's distinguish between then something called personal property and fungible property. Fungible property is property that can be quite easily traded. That is there for, for the purpose right. of the so market. Is that what fungible means? That's a tricky term. Yeah. yeah. So it means something that can be traded. So, so the difference between home and real estate right would be the difference mm. between a personal property and a fungible prop and fungible property correct now correct when you're looking at it from the perspective of personhood what constitutes a sense of self right yeah. sure so there are certain things in your life that are integral to what make you a whole person so we can almost kind of go as far as to say property for personhood Right sure. now, we've got to be careful here because people get attached to all kinds of things. You could get attached to, you know, your diamonds. You could get attached to, you know, your 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 fancy car or whatever it is. So, yeah. pro- property could be both kind of domination and and the kind of moral work that is needed. So, it, there's always a tension there. But we can, yeah. as a society, kind of agree broadly. There are certain things that there's certain kinds of relationships we have with certain things that are integral to what it means to be a person, right? It's integral to your identity. It's integral to your sense of freedom about who you are and how you can choose to live. It's also integral to context in terms of the kind of how you build community around it, right? Your wedding ring is not just a ring. It's also, it's context. It's a sense of freedom to be able to kind of live the way you want to live, to love the people you want to love. And I know it's, it's a testament to that. Yeah. It's also your identity as who you are as a person, as, 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 as a partner, as a lover, or, or as a beloved yeah. in that sense. But it, it also is something through which, you know, you know, your friends and your community recognizes you as a person. And, and that ring so, is... Sorry, and, and just to pause, I, I'm yeah. very invested in this wedding ring example because mine was stolen at gunpoint as as happens uh and it meant so much more than losing any other item of equal value sorry just to say right exactly so that that's the point i'm trying to make so in in a way it's sacralized it's invested with a lot of kind of you know cultural and power to it right the same thing with land where you yeah buried your grandfather or grandmother or whatever it is i mean it suddenly becomes something else right um so now 
here, I mean, it, there's a there's a really kind of so here, the court now is 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 presented with two things. With for somebody, it's it's bottom line, it's profits, right? And okay. for somebody else, it's it's who you are, right? And so when 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 in law, when you say you want to protect you. What exactly are you? Who would, when you want to protect the legal subject, when you the juridical subject? What exactly are you trying to protect? Yeah. Right, like when you talk about the Bill of Rights, when you talk about rights, why are these rights important? Yeah. These rights generally are important because we see that that's what makes up personhood. That what that's what makes up the good life. That that's what makes up who we are as people, right? And if you start taking mm. those rights out, essentially, then you just have a body that just floats around. But bodies are never just bodies. They're invested in all kinds of meaning, mm. right? So you, with the kind of case law that you're presenting to me is one person coming up there right, and saying that this is my life. This is who I am, right? I'm just trying to kind of pull, uh, you know, pull up <clears throat> uh, yeah. some of the cases that 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 you shared with you shared with me, um, and I think let's 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 see. Okay, so in in the um, in the Baleni case, right? Uh, it starts out where there's a quote, uh, you know, the uh, from by Petros and Kosi from the Constitutional Court, Judgment of Daniels versus Scribante and others, where he says, where this, you know. Applicant says the land, our purpose is the land. Our purpose is the land. That is what we must achieve. The land is our whole lives. We plow it for food. We build our houses from the soil. We live on it and we are buried in it. And he goes on to say many things. And he says, you know, our people have many problems. We are, we are beaten and killed by farmers. The wages we earn are too little to even buy a bag of mealy meal. We must unite and help each other and so on. And then he concludes with a very poignant sentence when he says, but in everything we do, we must remember that there is only one aim and one solution. That is the land, the soil, our world, right? So the idea yeah. of our world, an entire sense of a cosmovision of a person is linked to the land. And it's very different from real estate talk in terms of, you know, what is the measurement of land, how much it is. So, doesn't sound very fungible. Yeah, it doesn't sound very fungible. So essentially then, I would hazard to make a statement here to say that then, jurisprudentially speaking, personal rights to property mm. should trump fungible rights to property. Now, one could say, wow, that's a pretty big statement. Yeah. So, you know, you could actually then say that if someone can establish a deep personal relationship to something, then that should have a higher status in, 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 in judicial decision making than someone who just says, I need to mine this because you know we need to make a profit out of it, and this land is the same as any other land, well, right? Well, recognizing that profits may be important in our jurisprudence, yeah, profits may be important in the jurisprudence. So, so there's there's there are certain questions then then comes in around the idea of of so this property for personhood. Like that's that's one kind of sentence I'm uh, one statement I'm making. Uh, we could extend that logic and talk about property for peoplehood, right? So essentially, is there some kinds of property that are integral to a people that without it, without this, for example, the community in which, uh, to which 
say, you know, uh, Baleni belongs to or the community uh, to which, um, you know, uh, uh, Grace Maledu belongs to in the other case. Um, I mean, yeah. without this land, they're no longer a community. So as a people, there's no peoplehood without that land. Those families living there, they've lived there uh, for several generations. So, so, the, so the question then becomes that if an entire peoplehood can be destroyed by just taking away the land, yeah. does that have a stronger claim than for a company to say, well, this is titanium here or there, anywhere, we will just mine it, right? Yeah. So, yeah. so now- and, and under what circumstances under will what that circumstances? happen? So now if you start tracking how courts behave, even though they never express it, this is the central problem they're trying to work out, right? So sometimes courts argue, they, depending on the kind of nature of the bench and their own leanings, they could say, they could make this, they could hold the position of certain things being universally commodifiable. And by that, what I mean is that everything is up for sale. So what, so it's a kind of an interesting argument for, for, for uh, you know, so this law and economics school, Richard Posner, for example, that's the thing. I mean, the yeah, idea of yeah. universal commodification that, that, that if people want to sell their babies, they should be able to go ahead and sell their babies. I mean, in the sense of as long as there's a willing seller and a willing buyer, that should be okay. The state shouldn't necessarily <laughs> right. regulate. Okay, I'll, I'll let you finish up. Yeah. No, no, no. Keep, keep going. Yeah, keep yeah, going. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. So, um, uh, so the um, so that that could be one argument to make that everything is is universally commodifiable, right? But it makes for very poor public policy. Yes. Right. At the same time, you also want to acknowledge people's freedoms, right? So, what is personal property, and so. There, there, so along with this personal property and fungible property comes this other question of market alienability versus market inalienability. Are there certain things that cannot be market alienable at all? And there are certain mm. things, for example, mm. are there certain things that cannot be bought and sold just like anything else? And there are certain things that, that are market alienable. So even if you look at indigenous communities, for example, I mean, they, have, they have large areas of land. There are certain areas of the land that are really sacred, and there are certain other areas of the land that could be sacred but has a different kind of status. Where a different it, balancing. A yeah. different balance, right? So the, the question always in any situation is how do how do you make how do you make public policy decisions around it? Right? So for example, the state would say it's against public morality to sell your baby, right? But one could say, well, my baby. And I, we agree. I, and, and yeah, and, 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 but, but there has been, there's been a lot of conversation around this. But let's say, for example, you people who are, who do surrogacy, for example, where you're able to kind of you know, rent a womb, so sure, to speak, in that sure. sense, that's, that's allowed. And, and it, it is a financial transaction. So it becomes a very tricky thing because even the community right. that you refer to, there are some people in the community who say, well, this land is who I am and who my people are. And other people in the community say, well, it's not a big deal. You know, we can, we can yeah. lease it out to the company. So there, Why there not? is also that. And, and so you're also trying to kind of look at the issue of individual freedoms here. People have a right to decide. And this has been a huge issue around, you know, cases relating to sex work. 
does a person have a does a woman have a right to choose what she wants to do with her body okay. versus at some level should what what should be the kind of status around legislation around this because there are also kind of people who are striking desperate bargains and it's quite churlish to tell uh, you know uh, uh, you know a single uh, ma, uh, ma, uh, mother who's raising a child to say you can't do certain things if your child is starving so there's that mm. but at the level of policy what is the policy to take what kind of conditions should the state create where you know do you encourage and encourage certain kinds of forms of economy or do you discourage certain forms of economy now i'm saying all of this because none of these cases are just cases in themselves you are actually having a public policy conversation in yeah. this entire case right and so the proposition i'm making is that say like if you start recognizing the idea of property for peoplehood in your case like in these cases where these these this land is integral for the for these communities and who they are and there has been a, there have been cases unsuccessful cases that have been fought in the us i mean there's like this there's a navajo nation case where the san francisco peaks for example it's these are these are these are mount these are lands that have been held by the state and the state leases it out to a ski bowl resort and the ski bowl resort wants to create artificial snow so essentially what it does is that it sprays a lot of the water and then it it, it turns it into snow and and for mm. skiing but a lot of this water is is recycled water from human waste and so even though it's got a very small percentage of kind of you know trace waste human waste the fact is that the the neighboring kind of indigenous communities there challenged it to say that these mountains are sacred and they, and you are basically yeah. kind of you know you know creating snow that's based on kind of human waste water and that's like you know pouring toilet water in your church so to speak right uh now it's an interesting qu- question because the community technically doesn't have title but yes they have they have the their claim was that they have something called cultural property rights Yeah. And when you say cultural property rights, essentially they're saying that by virtue of practices of certain culture that are integral to us as a people, we're not asking you not to go ahead and create snow. We're not asking you not to lease the land to the snowball um, uh, company, but we're just challenging the use of a certain kind of water on it because this is where we go annually to perform our rituals and to perform our ceremonies, right? now of course the court said well if we entertain these kind of you know claims then you know the whole of america then becomes something that uh that every community will say we've got some cultural relationships to it or whatever it is but i think that's 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 making a very big claim because not every community is doing that in the first instance and this community can establish yeah. you know years and years and years of ritual practices that have taken place on that particular peak where they go offer their prayers and where they go do their ceremonies and so on and so forth so what i'm trying to kind of point out is that in in a lot of these cases uh, in you know in the interamerican court of human rights or the african commission on uh, you know human uh, people's rights for example what you're seeing is courts trying to resolve this particular tension where it says that the state yes has rights over these lands by virtue of the fact that you know in these areas all these kind of lands belong to the state communities have been living there for several generations they have deep relationships with the land they have stewarded this land 
and you've got companies that are coming in that have leases that have been given by the state. How do you resolve it? And while there are cases that go the other way, in cases that there are many cases where community rights have been upheld, saying communities need to be consulted because this land is integral to who they are as a people. Yes. And it's a particular way of life. Now, if the community itself had turned the land into a fungible resource, where the community was already kind of, had already divided up the land and right. already turned it into little kind of plots and they were doing it and different people were selling it, etc. Then the nature of the arguments and how the decisions would have been made, my hunch is that would have been very different. The reason the communities in these cases were su successful was because they made a certain kind of a moral argument. They weren't using the word as, you know, a property for peoplehood, a property for personhood, a fungible or, you know, personal property or market alienable or market alienable. They, were not, they, they weren't saying any of these things. They were just making an emotional appeal to say this land is who we are as a people. You take this away, we are destroyed as a people. But we have cared for this land for all these generations and we can show the ethic of care because these areas, when you use the word bioculture, essentially what we're saying is that the culture of this community is linked to the ecology. It's a co-evolved ecosystem. There is no land without, this pe without these people. There are no people without the land. And who these people are and how they identify themselves are essentially nodes in a dense web of relationships with the land. And if you start reifying that, and if you just see them as are they property holders or not, you're missing the entire social web, which has conserved this ecosystem, but which has also kept these people alive. So the court then says, sorry, then in these particular cases, personal property for peoplehood has to trump over just, you know, just property for this particular company. But, but they don't say it so much as much as established the, the relationships communities have, there's been a lack of consultation, the laws need to be followed, etc. So they use a very different kind of an argument. But I would definitely say that if the community had not treated the land in that particular way, didn't, wasn't able to establish that density of relationship with the land, they would have had a much weaker claim. So that's really what I'm saying in terms of if you start noticing the jurisprudential tendency, that's where things go. And that's the kind of yes. arguments that are made. And in each of the cases that you have represented, Richard Spur has represented, both those cases we were talking about, you know, <laughs> the Grace case and the Bellini case, the arguments of these communities are saying that, hey, we've been living here for a really, really long time. You know, our ancestors, yes, we yeah. can say that, yes, okay, we couldn't buy this land initially because of discriminatory practices. That's why the land is in the name of the minister and so on and so forth. Those are all the technicalities. But if the community was not able to establish that density of relationship, the case could have gone in another way. So Kabir, you've, you've said a lot of things and I've had a lot that I wish to unpack on, but you know, I don't think I can take all of your time by doing that right now. But what I did want to mention is the fact that a lot of what you said just reminded me of the different cases of mass unlawful occupation that we see in South Africa. Obviously, you know, with a lot of what's happening right now, with not a, that we have a massive housing crisis in South Africa, and that because of that, there's been a lot of unlawful occupation. But the reason I thought of that is because you drew the distinction between, you know, one's relationship with their home and someone, and, you know, just a developing company's relationship to different buildings that they're just leasing. And I thought that was interesting, incredibly interesting, because when you look at the jurisprudence in South Africa, you would see that legislation covers the meaning of a home and 
kind of talks to that relationship that you're mentioning between a person and their home, but that same relationship would not necessarily be seen to apply between someone and their holiday home, for example. So it's not necessarily based on attachment. And by that, I mean that, you know, you could be protected from being arbitrarily evicted from your home, you know, without a court order, et cetera. But that protection doesn't necessarily extend to you being evicted from your holiday home. And I thought that was interesting, you know, based on that relationship that you were talking about and that personal rights kind of angle but anyway that's just like a fun fact that I wanted to mention based on what I was thinking the whole time while you were speaking but beyond that what I was also thinking is the fact that you've mentioned capitalism quite a few times and I thought that was interesting because when I was listening to you speak I kept thinking that the way you are almost you know reconceptualizing property reconceptualizing the law around property and the way we think about it and biocultural rights seems to do that as well. And let me put it in this way, you know, like reading your work, I've seen that you draw a lot on the fact that communities were dispossessed in the name of conservation, sorry, of conservation. And they were penalized for carrying out, you know, their traditional livelihoods and customary practices. But you, you rely on that fact. And then based on that, it seems like biocultural rights is kind of a way to decolonize the law, decolonize the way we look at property, you know, removing the focus on the individual, which also not only colonization does, but also capitalism. Capitalism does this thing where it wants us to, you know, forget about community and rather look at individual greed. And biocultural rights seems to, you know, go away from that and instead put the onus on the community as a whole. So I wanted to know your thoughts about that. Am I completely off the mark or what are your thoughts? Well, I mean, I think, <clears throat> I mean, I use the term capitalism um, primarily because I think as an ideology for most part in its, in its perhaps in its most crudest form, uh, it advocates for universal commodification. Right. By that, I mean that everything has exchange value and the use value of something is forgotten. And I use the word use value and exchange value, you know, in a, in a very careful sense. I think, you know, Marx writes a lot about this in his economic and uh, political manuscripts. And he wrote this when he was 26. And I would really say you know, it's well worth reading. Beautiful piece of writing. I mean, it's kind of younger Marx being very philosophical about these things. But essentially, when we look at, we, we tend to fetishize, you know, goods or, you know, even property, for example. I mean, like, in a way, what, what, what I mean is this, like, if you, the, the kind of say that the table that you're sitting at and you're speaking to me from, right? At some point in time, it was wood. It was a part of a tree that was probably grown, uh, grown somewhere, uh, you know, on somebody's land. There were some people who labored around it, someone who planted it, someone who grew it. 
And then there were also people who then kind of then logged it. And then there was someone there, there was a carpenter who was involved in making it. And there were workers who were involved in processing it, all of that. And that ends up being a table. And then you end up, you know, purchasing it. And then now it's in your house and now it's your desk. Now, essentially, when you, when you look at that table, you don't think of all these things that have happened before that has arrived at you. I mean, it's just a table that you have bought online or you've gone to the shop and bought it. So what so much of one's attention then goes into the exchange value of the goods, saying how much did the table cost, right? As opposed to our attention is then really drawn to the kind of web of relationships that, that have produced that table. You know, the relationships with nature, the people who are involved, the labor that has gone into something like this, et cetera. And, and what, when, when I use the word capitalism, essentially what, what, I'm, what I'm saying is that what capitalism does for most part, I think we've lost Johan. I think, oh yeah, he's back. I think what capitalism does for most part is tend to focus your attention primarily on the exchange value of things. The use value is consistently erased. And so when I, when, and the use value is essentially the kind of social relationships that produce something, right? And historically in pre-capitalist societies at some level, as I said, you know, market values were, were had to be embedded in social values. What was important for society took precedence over how economic decisions were made and economic decisions were made primarily to reinforce or serve social values. And it's a phenomenon of late capitalism where all social values tend to get subsumed under market values in terms of you know, what, is, what is profit. So increasingly, our entire gaze becomes focused on exchange value instead of use value. We, we forget the web of relationships that constitute the production of something or the making of something. So that's really what I'm highlighting, that political economy proceeds from the fact of private property. You know, it does not explain it, right? And, and so all these laws that we have, they, you know, they, we just take them as given, but we never really see how they arise from the nature of private property itself. And so that's really what I'm trying to kind of say in the context of biocultural rights. I'm saying that we've got to be able to pierce this reification, as I said, where the abstraction becomes, is held as equal to the real. And say the real still is the social relationships. The, the real questions are still about what is the good life? What is the kind of life that we want to live? How should we live? What does it take to be a person? What does it take to be a whole person? And in some sense, we've got to keep coming back to the body and how we experience these things at the level of the body. But from there, then, then we then start saying, okay, but then so what is of value? What is important? So, so what I'm trying to kind of say is that I'm trying to ask through this concept of biocultural, I'm trying to ask us to, 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 to see through this magic trick of this optical illusion or this phantasmagoria that, that a certain ideology has kind of created where we take the way 
it is as a given, but instead we say ultimately it has to come down to what does it mean to be human? What are the kind of relationships that are value? What is use value? How do people use these things as opposed to what is its value at the given marketplace of exchange? So biocultural rights is a way to do that. It's easier to do that in the context where communities can establish dense relationships. And, and, and you can see a lot of these kind of fights are being fought between companies for whom this is purely fungible property or something that can be commodified. And for communities that who are still in many ways, while they have been ground down under the wheels of capitalism to some extent, there are still communities that among whom universal commodification hasn't happened. They, so that, you know, Petros Ninkosi says, this land is our world, right? It's very hard for one to kind of relate to what that, if, if, if there's someone who's born in the city of, say, New York or whatever it is, and, you know, who's always lived in an apartment and, you know, who's kind of moved from apartment to apartment and whose entire way of being is based on, you know, with, with my credit card in my pocket and my job, I mean, I'm constantly mobile, I can go live anywhere, I can do anything. So for that person, it's very, very hard to understand what Petros Nkosi is talking about. But we talk, so essentially we're talking about two, two worldviews and one worldview is wholly, in, in some senses, wholly capitalized in some way. It's more in terms of, and in another worldview, it's saying actually relationships are more important. And, and so what I'm trying to kind of point out is that that's the real struggle that's happening in the law because the direction in which the law moves, whether it says everything's universally commodifiable or whether it says certain things cannot be commodified beyond a certain point, certain things where we relationships have to trump kind of, you know, uh, the, the bottom line. These are big kind of policy debates that we're having at this point in time. So the entire conversation around climate change or how companies can behave, what is the public good? What, what you know, the, the kids' rights to breathe kind of, you know, clean air, you know, intergenerational obligations that we have to future generations. All of these things are trying to push or bring forth the primacy of relationships over purely market-based trading. So what I'm trying, so I, I keep kind of bring it down to the fact that what you see is happening in courts using the using the language of the law are ultimately tackling some very very fundamental questions at a social level because we are at a crossroads because as a species we have realized that things cannot be universally commodified without things being to our peril and the more we do it the more we're walking down the road to perdition and the generations to come will not have anything left and it, and potentially they will not have any kind of deep relationships with anything except their Facebook accounts. So in that sense, you've got to be able to kind of really look at what, what we're talking about here is not just in terms of the law. It's talking about what does it mean to be human and then, you know, working from there onwards. So, so I think I keep and underscoring the fact that never lose sight of really what we are really talking about here. It's kind of easy to kind of get caught up in the kind of legal arguments, which is very important because to be practical, those are the arguments that have to be marshaled in court and to win to win a case. But you you will make a better argument if you know the deep structure of which you're the real issues you're really arguing about. That way you can you you can make sure that you know you're able to kind of effectively put forth even to inform the judge. So we, saying this is really what we're talking about. We're just not talking about whether this person can stay on the land or not, but really at the heart of it, this is the big jurisprudential question. Kabir, uh, as I expected, uh, you're just giving us too much amazing content. Uh, and, and I'm 
I have it, it, the hard thing is I would love to keep going even if, if it took us 10 hours, but I also want to close things off both uh, to release you, but also so our listeners have something digestible. So if you don't mind, just uh, I, what where you've left us could be an amazing conclusion, but I just wanted since we didn't tell you it's the last question, just give you one last opportunity if there's anything else you want to say with just with this slight prompt. Um, tomorrow we will, my clients will receive judgment in their application to inter interdict the seismic blasting by shell exploration of their seas. They have told the court in really moving detail uh, about how important the sea is to them for their livelihoods to eat from with the fish, uh, but also for the healing properties that they feel come from it, both through just going into it and then also through a special relationship that their Sangoma's traditional healers have with the sea. And I just wanted to put that to you just to see if you have as a prompt any closing thoughts before Tanvir takes us out. <clears throat> Well, I mean, I think the prompt I have is, I mean, I think you've said pretty much, I think I'm, I, I can fully appreciate what your clients are talking about. But see, what the other thing to kind of think about is that your, what your clients are also doing, perhaps unconsciously, but maybe it's unconscious because simply because it's, it's so integral to who they are and how they think. Sometimes, you know, what is so integral to how we think is actually almost unconscious. We don't see the water we're swimming in. But, but, but essentially what they are saying is also i mean if you really look at the kind of relationships that they're talking about with the with the ocean and with the fish and you know with with you know with with uh, with the whales and all of these other things and how the seas may kind of lasting and how it's affecting the, affecting the entire ecosystem they are they are counterposing a radically different perhaps a pre-capitalist and paradoxically a post-capitalist subjecthood or a sense of self against another sense of self that say the company is kind of putting over. Because essentially they're saying that who I am as a person are these relationships I have with the water and with the land. And importantly, it's, it's going further where it's even challenging the kind of a, cent a central idea of the Anthropocene, which is a kind of an anthropomorph, which is a kind of a centrality of, of human beings uh, to, to the world, but rather also kind of talking about a sense of kinship, a duty of care, a sense of a bond and a relationship that one has also with the non-human world, right? And it kind of almost takes us to the other part of what we didn't have a chance to talk about now, but I'm sure that you'll have other people to talk about this in your future podcast is about what about the rights of nature? What about the rights of other, you know, other beings that we share the planet with, you know, and, and if at some level we cannot, it may be too early for courts to start recognizing the rights of nature or the rights of whales, for example, then at least let's start recognizing biocultural rights, because essentially what some of these people are talking about is that who I am as a person is also constituted by my kind of kinship relationships I have with the trees or with the animals or with the water, with the fish. 
and and at least start recognizing that and these are i mean it may just seem as an argument the community is making so as to kind of retain you know access to the traditional waters that it, that hasn't been destroyed by this by what the company is doing but these are very very profound and radical arguments because it 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 really militates against the very dna of of a capitalist world view of universal commodification where it says that certain kinds of relationships are sacred they cannot be destroyed they are they make us who we are and that includes our relationships with other non-human species but also with the land with the water thank you so much kabir i mean i've heard so many times from different people that property law is so boring but they've clearly never heard you speak because this was incredibly interesting and as johan has mentioned we could go on hours just you know talking to you and unpacking everything that you said but i wanted to say a big thank you from johan and myself and this amazing podcast to you for taking the time and coming explaining to us and talking all things property with us i mean uh, i just want to leave all of us with one thing the my favorite property law luminary professor van der waal late professor van der waal has always been calling for these this reconceptualization of property which does not focus on ownership as being sacrosanct but you know the different interests that others who aren't owners have in property and just you know just generally the way we look at property and i really loved this conversation tonight because that's a different completely different way of looking at property which is not as you mentioned not looking at it as a thing but rather as the relationship we have with different rights but also the relationships we have with each other and with you know property as you mentioned but also as a community so thank you so much for this extremely interesting conversation i really look forward to us hopefully having more of those and just to follow your work broadly and thank you to our listeners for listening to this episode as well do let us know your thoughts and definitely comment and share and yeah what i've always wanted to say like and subscribe even though it doesn't apply here thank you very much and thank you also johan for hosting us tonight so yeah goodbye everyone Yeah. <laughs>